Hello and welcome to Bottled Up. Uh, it's a podcast with a simple vision to destigmatize men's mental health through the power of storytelling one conversation at a time. My name is Sunny, and on this podcast, I am joined by the awesome Jeffrey Ahern. Uh, Jeff is a senior mental health clinician from Melbourne, Victoria, uh, and has extensive experience in emergency and trauma nursing, rural nursing, alcohol and other drug counseling, and holds a master's in um, crisis mental health intervention, and is currently doing another master's in nutritional sciences. So um, not only some awesome experience, uh, but also a definite passion for the space of mental health. This was a incredible conversation. I think we touched on so many, so many different topics uh, throughout. Um, there's so much diversity in the topics we talked about as well. Um, and one of them is definitely Jeff's time as part of the police, uh, ambulance and clinical early response team. Um, and they otherwise are known as PACER, which is kind of a joint crisis response from police and mental health clinicians to people who might be within a crisis within the community. Um, we also touch on Jeff's um, early childhood, um, growing up, and, and some of the experiences that sort of contributed to his own mental health journey along the way as well. I, I do want to say that we touch on um, you know several confronting topics uh, throughout the podcast, including loss of life and, and sexual abuse. So the listen might be triggering for some listeners. Uh, and I do really want to reiterate that please, please reach out to close friends, family or loved ones um, if this podcast um, does have some sort of impact on you. And always remember that there's you know a number of different uh, services out there, such as Lifeline, um, and, and plenty others. So um, stay close, stay connected, and I won't bore you guys too much. <laughs> um, let's jump straight into the podcast. But, you know, in, in the words of uh, Andrew, uh, you know, who is Jeffrey O'Hearn? Um, <laughs> <laughs> many, 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 many things. So I'm a dad, I'm a friend, I'm a brother, I'm a son, <laughs> I'm a mental health clinician working on the front line, as, as you say, um, particularly during the pandemic, facing some big challenges, but working on the front line in, in an emergency um, department. So yeah, man, many things, I guess. Many hats. <laughs> yeah, and oh, move, maybe. Move, yeah. move in and out of those different parts of who I am. So tonight I'll be a friend, you know, going out for dinner with a friend. Tomorrow morning I'll be a, a dad when I take my youngest daughter out for uh, brunch. So. And then in the afternoon I'll be a mental health clinician when I'm back in the emergency department. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you've, this, de you've definitely got many hats on uh, at the moment. And um, actually Millie, who who put us in touch, um, was someone who was one of the students, you know, as, as you teach mental health first aid. Um, and I know you're, you're doing some work now, especially, you know, masters in nutritional studies, um, or nutritional science, uh, might be the more, um, accurate way of saying it. But, um, what, what, what fills, what fills your time now? And, um, you know, even some of the experience you're doing, um, especially with the police units, um, you know, as well, are you, are you still doing that at the moment? No, no, I've, um, I, about two years ago, I, I quit. Finished up my role working with the police on the, the team. I think right. for your listeners, it's called others. Uh, a team called Pacer Police and Clinician Emergency Response, where we have mental health clinicians sitting in police stations and we respond to triple zero calls. We actually go out on the road with the police. Um, but I did that for six years, um, and that was uh, full time evening shifts, which is another part of my journey <laughs> in terms of during that during that time my own. Self-care and nutrition went out the window a fair, fair bit and I um, put on a, uh, a whopping 23 kilos. And I'm only a little guy, so that was a lot, lot of weight. So um, once I finished up with the police, there was a journey for kind of coming back from that. But I'm back working in the emergency department and with the pandemic the last 12 months in full-time working in emergency mental what we call emergency mental health. So... Although now that restrictions are easing in Melbourne, I'm back, back to um, presenting face-to-face, -face, talking to, to groups of people about uh, mental health. So the last two days I was working with a school um, in Melbourne with, with their, a bunch of teachers talking about youth mental health. 
great. No, I, I think um, especially now, um, it's really good to see there's a lot more dialogue happening around mental health first aid. I have always known growing up of first aid. So, um, you know, I would personally be quite curious to know when, when did it start picking up um, these mental health first aid courses, especially with, with the public and um, people wanting to become more trained, um, you know, within the space of mental health? Has it been something that, you know, you're seeing a greater influx of student numbers coming in, um, both from like a wanting to be um, specialised and accredited, but also from, from a point of curiosity um, and just being equipped with the skills as well? Yeah, so look, the last 10 years have been quite remarkable. I mean, the Mental Health First Aid course, which is one of the things I do, um, um, was the program was written about 20 years ago and... Uh, I would say the last 10 years in particular, there's been this enormous increase in demand. People want to talk about mental health. Organisations want their team leaders and their managers trained up in mental health so they can better support their staff and recognise mental health problems. Um, people are, are recognising that um, when it comes to things like suicide risk, they want information and education in terms of is it okay to talk about it and what can we say is it is it really taboo not to talk about it? So mm. It's an exciting time in terms of you know this desire to actually get it on the radar. People wanting to be educated. So typically, any groups that I work with, they're there because they want to be there. So you know they're like sponges that they're just trying <laughs> to soak up as much information as as they can, um, so that they can. Uh, apply it to the people that they work with, to their family, to their community. But I think there's um there's a desire to for people to get a better understanding of their own mental health and take better care of themselves as as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Even I think for me, you know, myself and Mank and Udral, who are the other two people who you know we work on bottled up together. I think for us, one of the things we've learned is we thought we had a good understanding of mental health when we started last year. We still think we have a good understanding, but the more and more conversations you have and the more you unravel with people, the more you learn how vast the space is. And I think um, what's funny is the, what you mentioned about, you know, people wanting to understand their own mental health. Throughout that journey over, I would say, the last 16 months, um, you realise the more and more you work within the space, it's almost funny because, um, you know, we've all had our experiences um, and I think that's that's kind of why we're all, I would say most people um, are emotionally charged to work within the mental health space because of their past experiences and because of what they've seen, um, both at a personal level or um, from those around them. And I think that's, that's a great source of motivation um, and inspiration for people that enter the world of um, mental health and, and opening up the dialogue. Jeffrey, one one of the one of the things that um, is always a source of inspiration, um, you know, for me and and people like you who work both on our front line um, and both in the educational space as well. And um, I know this conversation will be unraveling a lot of topics um, over the next hopefully hour or so. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think everyone enters the space. Um, perhaps not everyone, but a lot of people enter the space of mental health because of their own personal experiences. Um, and I know for you, there's there's a um, you know bit of a backstory as to um, why you entered the world of um, you know mental health in particular, um, and then even more so now, I think you're exploring that um, in a lot more detail with um, nutritional sciences. I think a lot of people enter. Um, the mental health sector because they've got something to offer in terms of their own journey and and certainly I think well I know that I do from my own um, upbringing and and experiences um, in terms of um, being able to show um, empathy and compassion towards people when you've actually travelled your own journey I think that um, can be really incredibly valuable for the people that we I think especially on your point around. Um, just empathy and, and understanding. Um, there's definitely, yeah, I, I think when you're able to see someone who's experienced something very similar to you, um, both there's, there's empathy there, but also in the same, um, same notion where you haven't experienced 
you know, the exact same thing. And I, I don't think anyone's experiences are exactly the same because the way it manifests, you know, mm. some, you know, both, both people can, you know, two people alongside each other, both might have OCD, but the way it manifests in themselves um, and, and the way they, um, you know, from a physiological or behavioral point of view, that can change immensely between the two. Um, in your, in your secondment, were there, um, you mentioned it was four months, um, were there any moments um, during that secondment that really stood out to you um, and made you think to yourself, like, this is a space that needs a lot of work, um, you know, to be done. Um, and this is where I think I can provide the most value as a human being. I, I do I do remember, though, so I was working in um, southwestern Sydney um, um, uh, in a suburb, uh, suburb called uh, Hamilton and um, lower socioeconomic area, a lot of people with significant histories of um, trauma and family violence and um, as, as children. Um, and as we often see in lower socioeconomic areas, people don't engage in treatment, not necessarily because they don't want to, but, the, you know, there's a lack of education, there's a, there's a lack of finances to be able to, to go and access good quality treatment. Um, and so seeing that, that need there, I, I think, from memory is probably something that, that, that sparked the desire to, to move over to emergency mental health. I think, we're, I think we're quite good at helping people who turn up in um, an emergency situation in terms of their physical health. But certainly back then, I, I think, you know, we had a lot of work to do around helping people who present with a mental health emergency. And, you know, 20 years down the track, I think we still have, we still need to do a much better job in terms of you know emergency mental health mm. supporting people and even just having access to resources and, and professional support for people that's not enough mm. unfortunately and and you mentioned trauma um just then and um i know i know for a lot of people um trauma manifests itself in in very different ways um, and, and people experience trauma, um, you know, at very different stages in their life as well. Um, you know, some of which sometimes you, you don't really know the extent to that trauma, um, you know, maybe until a decade later. Um, have you, have you personally had, um, you know, as, as you look back at your experiences, um, and of course, if you, if you're comfortable sharing as well, um, how trauma has played a role in, in your life and, and um, both past and, and present and um, how, you, how you interpret that mm. going forward and, and how you um, yeah, bring, bring a sense of empowerment from, from any experiences that you've had. Yeah. It's only fairly recently that I've even... Um, been a little more public in terms of talking about my own um, history of trauma. You know, I had had a fairly um, traumatic upbringing. I don't think there's any other way to describe it. You know, my, my dad was in defence. We lived below the poverty line. There was um, lots of violence at the, you know, the schools that, that, I, that I went to. There were some pretty unpleasant teachers, unfortunately, in some of those schools that, that I had to deal with. Um, unfortunately... As a kid, I found myself in the wrong place at the wrong time on uh, four occasions where I ended up being sexually assaulted as well. And, and then um, I was um, uh, the victim of a significant um, bashing in Sydney when I was 15 years of age that landed me in hospital. And then um, in my uh, early 20s, I had a, a baby son who died in, in, in my arms and unfortunately, the circumstances are pretty complex, but the midwife had given me instructions in terms of how to help with the resuscitation. My son had been born quite stressed, and in doing so, rather than seeking professional help, um, I actually um, un unknowingly contributed to my own son's death. And there was a coroner's inquiry, and you know, it was a court case, and there was a healthcare complaints commission, you know, inquiry into, into that. So you know, it just seemed to be kind of you know trauma. Or trauma but it wasn't until maybe 10 years after my son died that I started 
doing my own research into well, how do you actually recover from trauma? How do you feel whole as a person again when you're you notching up all these experiences? And I should say, you know, I'm not alone. I'm very aware of that. We know lots of people um, are going to have be exposed to maybe a one-off traumatic event, but we also know that lots of people are going to just unfortunately, um, for some reason, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time multiple times and they have, you know, this kind of um, history that's um, uh, one trauma after another, after another, after another. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, so I started doing research, my own personal research into what do you do? How do you, how do you ever feel whole again? and safe as a person when you've been, been through trauma. And that's when I stumbled upon um, research. And this was a, this was very early days. We're talking a while back now, um, 20, 15, 20 years ago, yep. um, we, we were starting to understand that trauma um, was treatable and that people could actually recover. But this was on a background of very much the narrative was you didn't talk about it, you put it behind you and you, you just get on with your life. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. we know about trauma now, it's it's not possible. You can't simply put trauma behind you and get on with with life. Once we've experienced trauma, it becomes a part of the um, the rich tapestry of who we are as a person, if you like. And if it's causing um, um, impairment in terms of your ability to function, if it's causing you distress, then we, we actually need to tackle it head on and start, start to unpack it and, and talk about it, and which is what I ended up doing myself. And um, it's hard yakka, like it's hard work when you're actually unpacking trauma mm. and working through it. But, you know, at my age now, having just turned 51 last month, I can look back and I don't say it um, lightly, but look back at those various traumas and I hop in a time machine and go back and change it. I don't know. That I would, you know, these these traumatic experiences that actually make us people we are mm. today, and ridiculously common. I mean, that the lifetime the lifetime exposure to trauma is seventy five percent. So seventy five percent of the population are going to experience are going to be exposed to significant trauma. So it seems it's almost like it's just an integral part of the human experience is to be exposed to mm. to, to trauma and doing something about it. Is key in terms of functioning better and developing things like resilience. Mm. It's um, I mean, firstly, there's a lot to unpack there, and and thank you for sharing a lot of that. Um, it's you know to one to one of your points earlier. I I think it's very interesting how you know you've mentioned. You know, if if you take you know time machine back, whether you would actually change what had happened, and and I think to your point, it very much these these experiences in in one way, shape, or form very much feed into the tapestry of who we are, our personality, our behaviors, the way we interact. Um, both today, I think there's a lot of lot of aspects of maybe you or I and and our own personality that have come about because of our past experiences, without a doubt. Um, you know. To your point earlier, a lot of people, and and whether you had experienced that, and when you experienced, um, you know, the sexual assault, and whether you had known that was trauma in the moment, because um, at that moment in time it was an experience, and a lot of people um, have different reactions to experiences. Some people lash out um, in anger, and and that becomes who they are. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there might be experiences, you know, part of um, Pacer or, or the or the police unit where you've where you've dealt with. Um, you know, a lot of the children who come from very similar backgrounds, low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, broken families, broken homes, um, you know, it's, it's just a reaction to their environment. Um, that's, that's one, that's one, I think, um, type of reaction that you can get. Um, and another type of reaction you can get to experiences is being that quiet kid. Um, being that person that wants to please a lot of people, um, being that person who wants to fly under the radar, um, who wants to please others um, because they're scared um, of what the consequences might be if they were to raise their voice. Um, you know, as you as you look back at your own experiences um, and as you mature, and as you mature and um, 
you know, as, as you become wiser and then <laughs> you experience more, how do you look back at your experiences and think about the way you've reacted um, in the way, both in the moment, you know, growing up as a teen, but also to the person you are today? Mm. I think you, you've obviously done your research and you've got a good understanding of trauma, particularly for something like sexual assault. Kids tend to become, they tend to either lash out and become aggressive or they become passive and, and people pleasers. And, and I was the second. I was the, the kid that was extremely good, never got in trouble, yeah. <laughs> just, just wanted to please people around me. And, and, and in do, doing so, hopefully, um, uh, if I was good enough, people would stop hurting me. And that's, and, and the, the, I guess the problem with that, that creates, um, in, in terms of how you cope going for, forward in life, it's not just as, as a kid. Mm. So, you, you know, like to, to, to this day, I have to be very careful that I'm not making choices to please people. Um, be very conscious of, of, of you know, standing up and saying what I, what I think, you know, in the face of um, disagreeing with another person's uh, opinion or, or, or direction. And, you know, sadly for me, where that really played out horrifically was actually my son's death because I was so used to people pleasing and not being confrontational and not saying what I thought. I, I knew at the time I, there was something desperately wrong with my son, that he was extremely unwell. Um, said <laughs> like stuff you I'm going actually going to get some help and that that was her critical error was she didn't actually seek help which is what she should have done like what's what the coroner found mm. but you know in my mind there was this screaming voice saying you need to do what you know is right mm. and you know just pick your son up and run upstairs to the neonatal intensive care unit and just, you know, kick the door open and scream, scream for help. But mm -hmm. the people-pleasing side of me said, no, no, but listen listen to what midwife is telling you to do and, and just do it. And th this is not an indictment on midwives per se, any profession. This was just one midwife who made some um, very extremely poor, poor clinical judgment in the moment mm -hmm. on the background of, of um, um, stuff that was happening at the hospital and some political mm -hmm. stuff stuff going on and and i know from 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 um knowing people that know her that she suffered horrifically as well because of her, her choices um mm -hmm. but you know when, when i think this is one of the problems with, with, with trauma is it's not just in the moment it it, it impacts your across a life your lifespan and this is mm -hmm. i think well, you know this is why no we need treatment need people need to stop and unpack it and talk you know it took it took you know years of um, therapy to to um, unpack and to come to terms with the fact that I had in black and white a report telling me that I was that I had inadvertently contributed to my own son's mm. death. It took an awfully long time to come to terms with that. But what nobody knew knew throughout all these years, and it was it's only been recently that I've, I've even talked told people about this, is that I knew that at, at the time and part of what also contributed to his death was the way I um, was terrified of confrontation because of the childhood trauma that I had mm -hmm. to please people and just do as you're told, do, do, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are the consequence, the kinds of consequences you see with, with trauma that make it incredibly important for us to stop and reflect and, um, and I can come to terms with mm -hmm. the impact that it's had on it. And, and you mentioned that it's it's still very much part of who you are and, and you've had to, you know, realize in the moment and, and switch it off. How do you um I know and, and this is again a very a very similar similar topic but very different. Uh in, in my own experiences, I think growing up in a um in an Asian household or an Indian household, um you're told always to um you know respect your elders, um, you know, give them the greatest level of respect and um, you shouldn't speak back. Um, it's a very, you could say, spoken, unspoken rule that, that gets passed around. And I think um, what I've experienced personally and, and more so now um, you know, in the workplace is because I've been conditioned like that, 
um, you know, where, you know, I've been told always respect your elders, um, you know, more often than not just agree with what they say. That's very much transcended into different aspects of my life as well. Um, even in, in my, in my work life and whether, you know, you see, you know, you know, your, your colleagues speaking to you and, and they're saying things that maybe you don't agree with. Um, but those aspects of you, um, are always there just agreeing, being the people pleaser, um, afraid of confrontation. Um, how do you, how are you finding yourself? Cause I know for me, that's, that's a very difficult part, um, to switch off in, in myself and, um, I'm aware it exists. I'm <laughs> still working on it. Um, how have you been, you know, from a, from a point of curiosity, how have you been, um, sort of working towards, um, yeah, just that aspect to yourself. Hmm. I think I think it's we're always a work in progress because as well as you know I grew up in defence yeah I grew up in defence as well and the culture within defence is you listen to and respect your elders you respect authority and you 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 simply do as you're told look it plays out daily often I mean even this morning um, (laughs) part of a book club and we met to discuss this book that we've read over the last month and. there was one person who was quite opinionated and, yep. and they really didn't like the book and I really enjoyed the book and I really wanted to say something. Here we go. <laughs> kind of challenged him yep. in terms of, but I, I was actually, there was this little um, battle going on in my mind in terms of whether I could actually stand up, not stand up to him because it wasn't a, you know, a nasty situation, but it, you know, yep. actually have the courage to have my opinion, to have a different opinion. And, uh, and I did. It took me probably 15 minutes of you know, people discussing for me to actually <laughs> vocalise or to articulate what I was actually thinking. But I think it is, you know, we're, we're always a work um, in, in progress. I remember when I was much younger thinking, you know, once you got to this age, you'd be, you know, you'd be completely whole and, and, and together. <laughs> or then it was this age and then it was this age. And now at the age of 51, I'm like, I don't think we ever get there. I think it's yeah. the entire life lifespan of, of learning and, and, and reflecting and facing some of our demons mm. having the courage to do so rather than shying away from them. Mm. No, agreed. And um, I love your point about being a constant work in progress. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, mm. um, you know, as cliche it is, as cliche as it is, you're learning very much every day. And I think, um, every interaction this is this is why i love doing um podcasts and having these conversations because um very much how one of the past guests that we've had um a guy called hessian he he said you know every conversation that you have very much plants a seed um and you don't know whether or when that seed will actually sprout um but that seed's been planted um and that thought of of maybe you know when it sprouts in in five years time or in ten years time you'll actually take something away from that conversation if you haven't in, in that present moment. And, and that's why I love um, these conversations. It very much contributes to who I am as a constant work in progress. And I'm sure very much the same as you. Um, one, one thing I'm, I'm you know, quite intrigued um, to hear about, and it's always been, you know, you mentioned um, growing up in a low socioeconomic um, family and household. And I think, you know, I look at my own experiences, it's very much the same. Um, very much public schooling, um, single parent, single mother, household. Um, a lot of the things growing up for me um, haven't always been easy. There's a lot I've had to work for. Um, and I think that's obviously contributed to who I am, whether that's positive or, or negative way. I'm, I'm learning and growing each day. And I think I'm being able to pick out those aspects of myself. Um, but especially with your, your experience, um, whether it's been with the police task force or on the front line, when you come across, you know, other teens or other children or just other people out there, um, that have gone through something similar to you, um, whether it's directly, you know, similar to you or whether it's just trauma that's hidden under many different layers. Um, how does it feel to have those interactions um, with them? And I know you were um, in Andrew's podcast speaking about a study, um, I think um, something along the lines of um, children that have 
six different types of trauma or six or more types of trauma um, are more, more likely to, um, you know, inflict self-harm or, or something or other. I'll let you speak to that one. But, yeah, how, how has your experience been on the other end and, and how do you interpret that? Yeah. So what um, you're making reference to is that the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which was, um, you know, it was a groundbreaking study in terms of recognising the impact of multiple traumatic events on, on kids and the long-term impact, like increasing the risk of things like suicide and cardiovascular disorders and substance misuse. But, in, you know, like when, when I'm working um, in my role as a mental health clinician, often coming across people with probably more often than not, the clients I work with have a history of trauma, I would never, ever, ever disclose my trauma in a clinical setting like that. But I think it, you know, it gives, gives you insight and compassion and, and empathy that I, I wonder if it's possible to really understand if you haven't had the experience. And um, so I value it from that perspective. Um, it can also be by somebody who has, say, somewhat of a similar story to you, and there are times when I have to go away and escape at work, go for a walk or something mm-hmm. outside and then just um, step out of that situation and kind of gather my thoughts because it can be quite confronting to the point where, you know, there have been times when, you know, I've finished an assessment and where I even um, go to the office and write my notes, I actually had to go to the bathroom, you know, and have a little bit of a cry because mm-hmm. it was so confronting hearing that and, and recognising in yourself. You know, you were that little kid, for example, mm. yourself at, at, at one stage. But I do think, I do honestly think it's, it's valuable to have that. Mm. And I'd say cautiously that I'm glad for it, of that, to be able to demonstrate that empathy. You know, simple little things like to, to know that you can say to a person, rather than minimising their experience or their trauma, so simply after they've disclosed it to you to say, mm. I'm really sorry that ha- that happened to you. That's awful and that's really unfair and I, 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 wish, I wish I could take it away for you. That simple mm. validation of the person has a long way. A, a long way. And I, I learned that from, um, I don't know if you've heard of Renee Brown. No, I haven't. Ah, oh, she's remarkable. She's <laughs> uh, an academic from the States who's done a lot of work in different understanding shame mm. and I remember listening to her talk one of her it might have been a TED talk but she talked about just simply saying to the person I'm really sorry that happened to you that's really awful and the pain away mm. that simple validation has a, has a long long way but when I'm when you're saying it from the perspective of having had the experience yourself I mean you mean it you really mean what you say when you're saying to that you know, as a kid yourself, when you, you wish someone had been able to do the same for you, take that away. Mm. It's um, it's heavy stuff, <laughs> um, mm. and I think there's no other way to put it. Um, one one question I had um, is, you know, you mentioned it took some time for you to um, you know talk more openly about your experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, was there an element of shame that was ever part of it um, or were there some other elements at play um, that, you know, as you mentioned, hid it away from, from the public? Because um, mm-hmm. I think that becomes very important in understanding um, the source of why a lot of other people also tend not to talk about their experiences. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think uh, I think um, when it comes to child sexual assault, I would hazard a guess that most people, if not every person, um, will experience shame. And uh, I can't speak on behalf of women, but I, I certainly know as a, as a man having, you know, my perpetrators were all male. And so, you know, there's, there's terrible shame that comes with that because men are meant to stand up for themselves and protect themselves. And we think of fight or flight that you would have one of those responses, but a very common response is also freeze, where people, almost like you play dead, 
Mm. Just you, you become kind of biologically paralyzed and you're overwhelmed with, with, with fear. And so then, of course, the shame is, but why didn't you fight back or why didn't you mm. um, run away? And that played a huge role in me not ever coming forward. And I think also just that concern as to whether anyone will actually believe have to say. But it's interesting that when when I finally came forward and started talking about it, you then discover there are all these other men that have been doing exactly the same. Mm-hmm. They're going for years, sometimes decades, of carrying the, the, this shame and the, the, their skills, too terrified to talk about it, thinking they're the only, they must be the only little boy that had this experience and that you discover certainly not. I, I, I started by joining um, at one stage a, a, a closed Facebook group for men who are survivors of sexual abuse and you look, you get you get on that page and all these other people are telling their stories and supporting each other and you mm. suddenly realise you're very much not alone but all been carrying that, that guilt and that, that mm. shame for long periods of time. Mm. And and especially so in in your work in in addiction, um, because I know you've done some work in addiction, and and whether that's been through some of your experience or, or some of the experiences of of patients and clients that you've had, um, you know, for me, uh, addiction is close to home. Um, you know, the people that have experienced it very close to me, um, especially around alcoholism. And you know, we've had someone that's also come onto our podcast who who's talked about you know addiction of. Um, his father and how that's played a role in his upbringing. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a relationship between people's actions and experiences and how that manifests into shame, as as you mentioned, and how that in turn also can manifest into, you know, bad habits. I put that in quotation marks um, and that being addiction. In in your in the work that you've had or, or some of your experiences, do you see that relationship play out and, and how people, um, you know, they, they get, you know, pick up, I guess, quite simply just pick up habits um, that, that they think um, will alter their state of reality and, and, and make things, you know, feel a lot better. Because, you know, a smoker doesn't want to smoke. An alcoholic, you know, doesn't always necessarily want to continue drinking. What's your experience been, I guess, um, in, in that space directly? Mm. It's... Um I mean, if you go back to that um, adverse childhood experiences study, um, we know that childhood trauma, and particularly multiple episodes of childhood trauma, creates a significant risk to substance misuse. And um, this is not a person that's just making, willfully making bad choices. There's comfort to be found in substance use. And people, I've, I've always said, I've never ever met a, a client or a patient who woke up and they said their career choice was they wanted to become <laughs> an addict or a junkie or whatever words people want to use to label them, themselves. And that's very much an individual thing. Um, but I think um, it's a slippery slope. A person is experiencing emotional trauma and they're carrying that pain and they try whatever substance it might be, whether it be alcohol or a painkiller or cannabis or heroin, they try that substance and it numbs the pain mm. other than feeling absolutely rotten. They have this period of time where they actually feel quite good and then it's perfectly understandable then why a person would go back and then use that substance again because they're looking for relief from the pain that they're actually li- li- living with. Um, and it's, you know, from your perspective, you know, you've got, very much a personal experience of seeing that happen with someone with a close family member, which I don't. I don't want to have any close family members who um, been found themselves in the throes of addiction. Um, but it, it's understandable that people end up in a position like that. And then our response is to judge them and shame them, mm. and that just adds further to the, the emotional <laughs> pain that they're carrying because we like to judge and shame people who make them mm bad choices rather than recognizing there's a backstory to why this person is functioning mm. like this and I think your example of a smoker is very is really good people vast majority of people who smoke want to quit yep yep <laughs> they continue to smoke and mm. it's the same with substance use you know I sit with a 
patient in the, in the EDs, in any emergency department, and part of their struggle is not only their mental health but their substance use, and they want to stop. Mm. What we need to do is provide them with the tools to be able to stop and manage that emotional pain in another way rather than simply mm. coming at. Then we the whole range of challenges come with that. There are the stereotypes, like for men, for example, not supposed to ask for help. We've got cultural challenges for different um, cultural backgrounds where men, uh, well, anyone is not supposed to talk about mental health, mm. for example. And so it's, it's complex, mm. but it's completely understandable that a person finds himself in a situation like that. Mm. And, and the reason I ask that is because I know there's many ways that people, you know, treat themselves for addiction. There's, there's many different avenues that they go down. Um, one being your traditional Western medicine. Um, there's, there's tools out there in, in that space. Um, what I'm trying to get at is there's a person you and I both um, admire quite a lot, uh, that being Rich Roll and, and his story. Um, and, <laughs> and, and for those that are listening and, you know, you, you might be able to speak to this a lot more, but, um, Rich Roll is, is someone who does podcasts as well. Um, but he is someone who, um, is from America, a, um, best way to describe him, an athlete growing up, um, at Stanford university, um, very athletic guy who, um, you know, was constantly winning medals and, and being the front runner, um, for athletics and sport. Um, after he graduated from Stanford, he went on and started a career as an uh, entertainment lawyer. Um, and in that career, he battled a lot of different addictions, um, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Um, he was um, distanced away from family and friends um, for a long mm -hmm. period of that. Um, and it wasn't until I think his thirties, um, and I think a lot of a lot of his help from his wife Julie, um, who helped him realize that the path forward, um, you know, there's there's a lot to be done in the space of nutrition, and and how nutrition played a big role in his own um, addiction battle. Um, and I think he's he's one of the only people in the world, if if not the only one, who ran is it five ultra marathons in five days. Um, he did five Ironmans on the five yeah. Hawaiian Islands. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and this is a guy that was severely unfit, um, you know, going into his 40s, um, hadn't touched um, a bicycle, hasn't, you know, really gone onto the road and, and pursued anything athletic since his days, um, you know, in his 20s. And he, and he talks about now in his 40s and 50s, don't know if he's in his 50s, but definitely in his 40s, how. Um, he feels fitter than he's ever been before. And, and he attributes a lot of that to his nutrition. Um, yeah. I know you you personally, um, you know, you really took away a lot from his story um, and, and especially around um, plant-based diets. Um, you're also doing a lot of work, you know, with your masters at the moment. How has, um, yeah, how, how has nutrition in itself and, and exercise played a role in, in your recovery um, of course, there's nothing out there that can completely bring about a clean slate. What's, what's been done in the past will always be there in the past, but the way we bounce back and recover and, and keep going forward and, and this sense of fulfillment and, and a sense of, you know, feeling healthy and, and empowered, um, that's something that very much we have control of in, in some way or form. And I know nutrition can play a big role in that, but how has it played a role, um, you know, over the last couple of years for you? Hmm, yeah. I've um, I'd been listening to Rich Roll for a couple of years before I made the switch. I think I was, um, if you use the um, the stages of change model that we use <laughs> in for substance use, I was pre-contemplative for a long time <laughs> yeah. uh, and then moved into contemplative and then um, my dad had hip surgery. And I was at the hospital visiting him and I looked at the food in the cafeteria. I looked at the food that was serving um, him and the other patients and I was just horrified at the poor quality, highly processed, high in fat, high in sugar, high in salt. And I went down to the cafeteria with my younger sister and we 
ordered a coffee and I ordered a soy flat white and she did this <laughs> double take. <laughs> what the hell are you ordering a soy flat white? <laughs> and I just, I just, something just clicked that day, this yep. change. And I went whole food plant-based overnight. That was th- just over three years ago. And, and you were eating meat up until this point? I absolutely loved my meat lover's pizza. Yeah, okay. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Uh, eating, a, eating a very, very unhealthy diet on the road with the police every night. So we would, you know, everyone would, you know, pitch in $5 and we'd order a whole stack of pizza and, you know, yep. you'd be out on the road eating pizza, eating pasta, grabbing McDonald's and KFC. Um, I was um, also um, had gone through a marriage breakdown as well and so you know, struggling in terms of just personal mental health just feeling pretty despondent about that and, and the future and something just clicked and I thought mm. I need to actually make a choice and take this into my own hands in terms of managing my own physical and mental health mm. um, started running as well following um, you know, Rich Roll's example of operating exercise as well so mm. in Seven months, I um, lost the 23 kilos that I'd gained working with the police over six years. Right. And uh, 10 months, people thought I had cancer. I had colleagues <laughs> actually coming and expressing their genuine concern that something was wrong because I was, I was running six days a week. I was eating and, and um, my own – I wouldn't say that I had bad mental health back then. I wouldn't say that I – necessarily even met diagnostic criteria for something like a major depressive disorder but I well, mm. certainly wasn't in the best state mm. but the impact that had in terms of general sense of well-being and my mood and anxiety lowered my sleep improved um, I became more um, optimistic it was really quite mm. transformative doing that and I you know I, I can't <laughs> I actually can't go back I was walking through the supermarket yesterday and, you know, they've got the cabin with the um, cabinet with the roast chickens. Oh, <laughs> oh, the smell actually made me feel That's my weakness. nauseous. Uh, the smell of meat, I can't even cope right. with the smell of meat anymore. It just makes me feel quite ill. Right. I don't think I'll ever, ever turn back. And that's why I ended up then last year enrolling in my Master's in Human Nutrition because mm. Fascinated by this link between nutrition and mental health. I've actually got a quote here. Um, All right. <laughs> read yesterday, two days ago. The Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists Clinical Practice Guidelines for Mood Disorders has placed a healthy diet as the, the foundational step in treatment for mood disorders, describing it as essentially non-negotiable. These are the first clinical guidelines in the world to recognise the critical link between mental health sensational stuff right diet is now considered a foundational step um, in treating mood disorders like depression so getting mm-hmm. people to consider the, the nutritional quality of the nutrition that incredibly exciting you you mentioned optimism and and your outlook in life um just feeling feeling much better and i know this might be very hard to, to make this comparison, um, but, you know, if you compare your life into um, pre-plant-based and, and post-plant-based, I know there's a lot of stuff going on in your life, um, you know, outside just your nutrition um, when you were having, you know, a meat-based diet, and, and there might still be a couple of things going on at the moment. Have you found that that move to a plant-based, more nutritional diet um, but I'd be very interested just to hear in more detail just about your experiences in terms of outlook and, and the way you handle situations. Has has it played any of a role in those in those events? Yeah, if if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very, that's a very good question because yeah. for me it was um I did both at the same time. It was a, a significant change in my diet, but I was at the exact same time I went into some pretty serious. I made a pretty serious commitment to exercise as well. Um, so pulling the two apart, I guess, would be a little bit challenging. I do know, though, prior to changing my diet, you know, I've had a really rough week at work. It was particularly, you know, intense at yeah. home and decided to have something like a hamburger and chips or, or mm. KFC. Always right. felt 
absolutely awful after that. And not not awful as in felt guilty about what I'd eaten, but just physically felt mm. awful. And I could feel the impact in turn in the next you know, day or two on my um, mood. So I, I guess there's also maybe the placebo effect when it comes to nutrition. When you know that you're eating healthy, I think going to naturally feel more positive. Is, is that mm-hmm. the placebo effect or is that? Yeah. But the research would tell us that your nutrition is playing a role mm. as well, however, the quality of food that you're um, consuming. Um, I know I had friends around for dinner a while back and they're both um, they're master chefs basically. They're incredible <laughs> at cooking and um, they had had me over and they made this whole amazing three-course meal that was all whole food plant-based and they yeah. sacrificed having meat or any animal products and so then I decided to repay the favor and cook an animal-based meal for them when I had them over and uh it was nice to do it but um for them so and I ate it as well um but the next day I was physically terribly sick the next 24 hours were absolutely rotten and I know that was my body reacting to this large meal of animal products that I had point where I won't make that mistake again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not to be not to be too crass crass yeah. on your recording, but I spent a fair bit of the next day in the bathroom, shall we say. Oh right. <laughs> 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 There you go. There, there might be another segment to this episode where we <laughs> might break that down in more detail. <laughs> um, I, I, I always um, like practicality to everything. So um, quite quickly, I, I know you had an almost light bulb moment um, that made you consider that switch. But um, a lot of people listening at the moment, um, you know, maybe considering it. I know for me, it, it didn't enter the realm of my consciousness, if you say, um, a year ago or two years ago. Um, but it has probably, I think, during COVID and now my meat intake has reduced significantly. Um, I'm still eating meat, but I think it's a step that I I think I want to eradicate part of my diet and lifestyle. Um, what were some of your your first steps as, as you made that decision? And, and would you have, I guess, um, any advice for people that, you know, maybe even if you want to talk to some of the foods that you're eating at the moment, um, mm-hmm. just to, I guess, plant that inspiration in others. I know in Rich Roll's book, he has a massive appendix that goes on for about an hour and a half where <laughs> he's breaking down um, every conspiracy about plant-based diets and, and them not being, you know, uh, the concerns around um, it being protein dense, um, you know, and, and things like that. So he talks about asparagus, spirulina, beans, legumes, and, and a bunch mm-hmm. of other things. But um, yeah, I guess my question is twofold. Um, first steps for someone that wants to make the switch and maybe some options they can consider, um, you know, talking to some of your experience with plant-based diet. I don't know if you've seen some of the memes on on social media, like on Instagram that says, you know, typical diet of the person who's just decided to become a vegan, for example, yeah. you know, <laughs> dinner is a cup of, cup of rice and a banana because you're really quite clueless in terms of what you can eat. I was very much like that. So initially, basically, I was just, like dinner for me was just, I would have a massive plate of steamed veg. Mm. I, just, I didn't really know what I was doing other than I just wanted to eradicate um, um, animal products. Um, mm. and lunch would be like um, a salad wrap. So I would find um, wraps that didn't contain oil, for, for example. So very, very strict with, with the oil side of things. As well. mm. and part of what drove me is to be really strict around the oil is my dad, who has no risk factors for having a cardiac event, almost died about 12 years ago from having a cardiac arrest mm. and to this day, you know, remains quite unwell and he's got cardiomyopathy and not travelling well at the moment and yet he has no risk factors. And I thought, mm. He's an ex, ex-boxer, ex-cyclist, never drunk, never smoked, incredibly fit man. Oh, gosh, the way I've abused my, my body, yeah. you know, for, for many years. I thought, gosh, if this can happen to him, mm. what am I at risk of? Um, so it was very basic at first, you know, um, just a salad wrap for lunch and then just slowly started, I mean, the world's at your fingertips. You just jump on any search engine and you type, you know, simple vegan food. That's, so I found a, web, a, a website. I think she, it's called The Vegan 8. 
and yep. it's a, a vegan chef from the States, I think she is. But at the most, any of her recipes only have eight ingredients in them. So I just looked right. for really simple things because at the time I also didn't really like cooking. It, I yep. found it quite <laughs> a chore. Yeah. Um, it was easier just to buy takeaway, really, particularly mm-hmm. when you're working shift work and you're working long hours. And um, but, but really, it's it's all there. It's so easy easy to find now. So I actually have a folder in my Gmail account now called you know Jeff's recipes. And yeah. if I see something on Instagram, I get the link that out of the bio. Or I see something on the internet, and so then I could, I. If I'm struggling to think about what I might have for dinner, I just go to that folder, open it up, and I've got hundreds of all these recipes. So I moved to making things like, you know, fried rice but with like um, baked marinated tofu in it instead of adding meat, for, yeah. for example. And it's amazing the flavors that you can mm. – um, just how flavorsome the food ac- actually is. So that might be that I'll do a bunch of baked veggies or the other night I did a, a Singaporean um, – Noodle stir fry, vegetable stir fry, <laughs> um, but I found I found rice noodles as well. So you know, yes. rather than egg noodles, so avoiding the animal products as well. It's it's very doable. Mm. I think more so now than ever because you can just um, mm. jump on a search engine and find everything. So breakfast meat um, pretty much daily is just a big bowl of oats, and I add a teaspoon of turmeric because we've got good research demonstrating mm. the anti-inflammatory properties of turmeric. Then I add some um, some dried fruit and maybe a mashed banana mm. and cook that up and eat that and it's very filling and I really enjoy it. Um, uh, lots of fruit, so just you know for, for things like um, morning tea, simple little snacks. Like <laughs> my work colleagues think I'm a think I'm a bit bizarre, but often before dinner I'll just get two big leaves of spinach, yep. chop them up, steam them, and then just. Um, uh, Sprinkle just a little bit of balsamic vinegar over them, nice. and that's actually it's really, really, really tasty. And then you realize how lacking in taste processed and fast food is yeah. when you're starting to eat really fresh, mm-hmm. clean food. Um, so, when I'm on nights, for example, at work, which I hate night duty and I find it difficult to eat or lose my appetite, yeah. I'll, I'll take the other night I took um, rock melon and pineapple and apple and orange. Um, and watermelon, and I just chopped it all up and made like these four massive bowls of chopped up fruit. And then at work, I'm just nibbling on chopped up <laughs> fruit. And the flavour was incredible. I said to one of my colleagues, "Why would you bother eating lollies?" Yeah, <laughs> out of flavour. Very nice. <laughs> and um, we're we're just about near the end, but I did have one question, um, two questions. But um, I guess one one question we always usually end off with. Um, you know, where can people find you, which I'll get to. Um, but one question I had and, and one we ask is what advice would you have for someone who's going through, um, you know, their own struggle or, or their own battle? But I want to flip that question um, because I know a theme throughout this conversation has been you very much have gone through your own, um, you know, personal struggle and um, journey in, in your own way. But you've also been in a situation where you've been, I guess, the trusted advisor or the trusted clinician for many others that are also going through something in their own personal life. Um, and a lot of people, and, and I've often found this a struggle for myself, is being able to check in with mates um, because I'm also going through something. Um, and it's almost like, you know, because I'm going through something, I want to focus on myself. But there's, a, there's an element of being selfless and, and being there for someone else as well especially you mentioned earlier um, being part of the police unit and, and you are going through, um, you know, bad nutrition and, and, and that played a role um, in your own mental health. How have you found that relationship, um, you know, as you've been the trusted person for someone in, in terms of giving advice and what advice would you have for someone who finds themselves in, in that sort of situation as well? Mm. Very loaded question, I know. <laughs> I think I wish somebody had told me a long, long time ago that um, one of the best things you can do when life throws challenges your way is simply accept it. 
and I don't mean that flippantly, but just simply to be able to sit with it and say, well, this, this is just being human um, rather than fighting it. Um, and also knowing that things will get better with yeah. the right kind of treatment and support. We expect people are going to recover and do really well. I would also um, suggest one of the best things we can do is actually try not to focus on ourselves too much. Mm. Um, there are some, there's, there's power in actually flipping it and, and focusing on other people in the midst of your own struggles as well. So when we engage in acts of kindness and generosity and we show empathy and compassion towards other people, our, our brain actually rewards us by, by releasing floods mm. of really nice um, chemicals. I mean, we're, we're wired to actually almost self-soothe biologically through these mm. chemicals. So not spending too much time focusing on yourself is be part of um, your journey towards recovery as well. Mm. And finding moments to do that, obviously, to focus on yourself and, and ask for help. Um, but you can give yourself a break as well. Mm. And, and look, I know even um, when I was working with the police, when going through a marriage breakdown and my dad had taken quite um, ill as well, not long before that, my sister's husband had passed away unexpectedly and they were carrying mm. all this stuff. Yeah. Um, sometimes going to work was one of the best things I could do because it took my focus away from um, being an internal focus of why is this happening, why do I why does life always have to be? Mm. And I would get to the end of the show. It might have been a struggle to get to work because you're feeling a bit, well, I was at times feeling quite sorry for myself. By the mm. end of the shift, my spirits had lifted because I'd actually focused on caring for somebody else for a bit. And so it actually gives you a bit of a break from your own self, I think, as well as the benefit of them being on the receiving end of your compassion and your empathy and your kindness and your generosity. Mm. I think very powerful message, um, and I think you've you've you know seemingly and, and you know if if this assumption is correct, you found a lot of purpose in in the work that you're doing at the moment. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And and I think without a doubt that's played a huge role. Um, you know that you've been able to find something where you're able to serve others, um, and at the same time still learn so much for yourself and and bring that to work each day as well, um, which I think is is very remarkable. <laughs> um, one um, one question I do have, and I think many many people will have after <laughs> this podcast, is where can people find you? Um, I know you've got your own website as well, but um, you know whether you've done other podcasts or, or whether you want people to reach out to you, absolutely anything. Um, mm. You know um, where can people find you? Um, even if they just want to learn more about your work um, yeah. and anything like that. I think the easiest thing would be to go to my website, which is just my name, Jeffrey Ahern, A-H-E-R-N for November.com, because that <laughs> um, there is the, you know, the, uh, my, my own journey and transformation and story about the work that I do, but also there's links to things like Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook because I quite like social media and particularly jumping on social media and trying to post positive messages. Stuff. That's probably the, a good starting point. Yes, and people can reach out from there if they want to contact me personally. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there's an, an Andrew Spudfit Taylor's <laughs> podcast as well that I did with him. He's quite a remarkable man. He's got some some fantastic interviews as well. If people want to check mm. well, it'll all be in the show notes below. So um, I just wanted to say a massive thank you, Jeffrey, for your time. Um, I know this one has been a couple of months in the making and I think without a doubt I'm very grateful for having this conversation with you because um, I think without a doubt you've also had a lot of time over the last 10 or 11 months through your own experiences to reflect and, and have some new experiences as well um, um, since then so thank you very much for coming on board um, it was a pleasure to chat with you I think I took away a lot um, and I hope people and I hope people listening to this um you know, obviously take something away because um, I think there's a source of inspiration in every story. I would agree with that. It was too. Thank you very much. (laughs)
And there you have it. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, it was an incredible conversation in person. Jeffrey is an awesome person. Um, and I do want to pass on my thanks to Millie, who put us in touch as well. So um, follow us on Instagram uh, at Bottled Up Oz. Um, if you guys want to uh, check us out and, and see what other conversations we've got up in the mix, I'll also put Jeffrey's details in the show notes as well. Uh, until then, um, see you next time. And we've got an awesome guest lined up for next week. Ciao.